An History of Magic, Witchcraft, and Animal Magnetism, Volume 1, by J.C. Cahoon, Esquire, narrated by Graham Dunlop, editing by Darren Grimes. Preface There is no term, perhaps, which has been more frequently and more grossly abused and misapplied than that of science. The word, in its proper and legitimate sense, unquestionably denotes something known, or, at least, something worthy of being known, and it is generally and most correctly employed to denote a series of combined facts, which tend to establish a certain general law, or series of laws, of nature, either in the physical, the intellectual, or the moral world. In order to serve as a foundation for any general conclusion in matters of science, however, it is necessary to demonstrate in the first place that those facts upon which we rely do really and permanently exist in nature under certain conditions of development, that they are not exceptional, fictitious, or illusory, that they, under the requisite conditions, are not merely insulated phenomena of an accidental or capricious, equivocal, and transitory nature and that their existence and character fully warrant us in drawing the general inferences which, on the principles of a sane philosophy and sound logic, we are disposed or compelled to deduce from them. We may remark, however, that in recent times, and particularly in this country, the term science has been generally, and we think most improperly, restricted to physics alone. For there are facts in psychology and moral philosophy which are equally, if not more important, equally susceptible of analysis, and equally capable of being reduced under general laws. And these facts and these laws, therefore, are at least as deserving of our research and investigation as those which have been discovered in the economy of the physical universe. Nay, the former are even of more real interest and utility to man as an intelligent and rational being. There are some persons, says Plato, who draw down to the earth all heavenly and invisible things, grasping with their hands rocks and trunks of trees, maintaining that there is nothing real exists but what offers resistance and can be felt, holding body and existence to be synonymous. And when others say that something may exist that is incorporeal, they pay no regard to this and will no longer listen to the subject. Plato, Ed. Stefan, page 246. The study of physics, it is true, as well as that of psychology, has been discouraged by influential individuals and sects at various periods under the mistaken impression that the knowledge thus acquired must ultimately prove prejudicial to certain other moral or social interests, which ought, in their estimation, to be held paramount amongst mankind. And consequently, the progress of all science has been occasionally much impeded, and its cultivation discouraged during almost every period of the history of the world, as if ignorance were productive of the most perfect happiness, and most conducive to the interests and well-being of the species. These latter notions, however, insofar as they relate to physical science, have now been pretty nearly exploded. We are now permitted freely to examine the material objects and physical laws of the universe without becoming liable to an imputation of heresy, and the same result we apprehend must ultimately follow in the case of psychological investigation, 
in regard to the presumed tendency of which much prejudice still continues to be entertained. In this latter department of science, indeed, facts are daily in progress of development, which are not only of great practical importance, but also, in other respects, of the highest interest to mankind, as social, intelligent, rational, and responsible beings. About 80 years have now elapsed since Anthony Mesmer, a German physician, first announced a new and very remarkable discovery, which he had made in the course of his researches, which, although little appreciated upon its first promulgation, was afterwards found to be of no small importance towards the enlargement of our scientific knowledge of nature, and especially the constitution of man. During a considerable period, as is well known, this very interesting discovery made tardy progress in the learned world. It was indeed new and startling. It was supposed to be inconsistent with some of the already accredited principles of established science, and therefore it received little countenance from the reputed learned men of the day. It was, moreover, although upon manifestly false grounds, accounted a dangerous doctrine, a downright scientific and religious heresy. The few who gave it their honest support and encouragement, therefore, were publicly denounced as mystics and ridiculed as fools, or commiserated as madmen. The magnetic discovery indeed was generally regarded even by many philosophers as a gross imposition upon the ignorance and credulity of the age, and no terms of contempt were considered too strong to be applied to the few faithful supporters of the apparently extravagant and heretical doctrine. Time, however, works wonders in the moral as well as in the physical world, and science has its revolutions and reactions as well as empires. A considerable number of intelligent and inquisitive men, unappalled by the denunciations of the ignorant and the interested, gradually obtained instruction from the modern discoverer of animal magnetism, or his immediate disciples, made experiments themselves succeeded in eliciting the much-controverted phenomena, and thus became convinced of the truth of the facts, and of the utility and importance of the prescribed magnetic doctrine. But the more obstinate among the skeptics would not even look at the facts alleged to have been discovered, or if they did condescend so far, they would not believe their own eyes, unless the causes and operation were immediately and satisfactorily explained to them. Such an explanation in these early times, however, was not an easy matter, and at all events, even had it been practicable, probably Mesmer was not the man to afford it. Besides, it is well known that many phenomena may be observed long before it becomes possible to explain them, or to demonstrate their rank and value in the scale of human acquirement, and therefore the skeptics were too unreasonable and impatient. How many natural phenomena are there, too, which have been known for centuries before their scientific causes and various uses in the economy of nature could be discovered by philosophers? And how many similar facts may not still await a satisfactory analysis and explanation? In the meantime, the adversaries of animal magnetism, and these were a very numerous class, found it more convenient to deny the facts altogether than to submit to the requisite labor of investigation. And in adopting this course, they were sure to have all the weak, the indolent, the timid, the ignorant, 
and the incompetent upon their side. Besides, they might probably have heard a great deal about supernatural powers, fascinations, enchantments, divinations, magic, witchcraft, sorcery, and perhaps thousands of ridiculous stories calculated to estrange all sober persons from the serious examinations of phenomena, which, without due investigation, must have appeared very marvelous and utterly incredible, and consequently a fair subject for skepticism. Moreover, there is always a multitude of individuals, even among the better educated classes, who themselves, incapable of conducting a new and serious investigation, or unwilling to undertake the task, are content to await the decision of those who are accustomed to guide the opinion of public in such matters before they consent to give in their adhesion to new and unaccredited doctrines. But in this particular instance, unfortunately, those who ought to have been most capable of directing the opinion of the public on the subject of Mesmer's alleged discoveries thought proper to assume an attitude of perfect indifference or of actual and violent and uncompromising and most unreasonable hostility. It may be remarked, however, that all of the great contemporary luminaries of science did not thus contemplate the reality of the early magnetic discoveries. And the opinions of such men as Jussel, Laplace, Cuvier, Trevarinus, Hufland, Sprengel, Schliermacher, Oaken, Riel, Oturioth, Burdock, Humboldt, and of many other eminent authorities, philosophers, naturalists, physiologists, and professional physicians ought to have possessed more weight with the intelligent and candid portion of the public. Nay, the very simple yet prolific and most interesting nature of the discoveries alleged to have been made by Mesmer and his associates and disciples ought, at last, to have had the effect of stimulating curiosity and of promoting inquiry. In the whole history of philosophical discovery, indeed, there is nothing perhaps more incomprehensible, we might add more paltry and contemptible, than the indifference and hostility which were so long displayed towards the interesting labors of the early magnetists. What could be more strange in a pretended age of reason and of scientific progress than to find a discovery so simple, yet so prolific in its consequences, a discovery which was calculated to throw so much new light on our knowledge of human nature and the flexibility of the animal organism in general and to increase our therapeutic powers. To see such a discovery confined within the contracted circle of a small number of inquisitive individuals who made no mystery of the acquisition they had made, yet who dared not to speak of the truths they had discovered and embraced, without exposing themselves to the opprobrium or ridicule of powerful and influential antagonists, even among the otherwise learned and ingenious. Had the question related merely to certain equivocal theoretical notions or to the adoption of some novel system of abstract truths, we may easily conceive that there might have been ample materials for controversial discussion. But here the subject in dispute was merely a matter of fact which was capable of being almost immediately verified or disproved by a direct appeal to experiment and observation. And moreover, the relative investigation was exceedingly simple, and besides, open and accessible to all the world. 
But it would appear that a large majority of the learned men of the age were, for one reason or another, obstinately prepossessed against the subject of inquiry, and little disposed to lend their assistance in investigating the relative facts. The members of the medical profession, although perhaps the most interested in the ultimate result of the inquiry, distinguished themselves throughout by their virulent opposition to the new discovery, and that from very obvious, although not very generous or even creditable motives. The greater part of our scientific prejudices no doubt arise from mental prepossession, from the partiality or inadequacy of our previous inquiries being unable to comprehend the whole of the diversified phenomena of nature and therefore confining our attention to a small portion of those which are most familiar to observation, we nevertheless proceed upon this partial view to form our judgment in regard to the totality of her laws. This premature and therefore contracted process necessarily conducts us to a partial and unsatisfactory fallacious and imaginary conception of the powers and operations of nature, which we feel ourselves incompetent or indisposed to embrace in their generality, or in the infinite variety of our manifestations. Accidental circumstances, too, frequently determine the attention of mankind, in every age, towards a particular line of inquiry, to the neglect of almost every other acquisition, and hence there arise at different periods total different and sometimes contradictory notions in regard to the probability or the possibility of certain alleged facts. Note, no man can learn what he has not preparation for learning. A chemist may tell his most precious secrets to a carpenter, and he shall never be the wiser, the secrets he would not utter to a chemist for an estate. God screens us evermore from premature ideas. Our eyes are holden that we cannot see things that stare us in the face until the hour arrives when the mind is ripened. Then we behold them, and the time when we saw them, not is like a dream. Emerson, Essay on Spiritual Laws Even at such times when the phenomena which now constitute the basis of the magnetic doctrines were generally known and recognized, they were, unfortunately, enlisted into the service of superstition and regarded as much too sacred to be investigated on the principles of profane science. Mankind are unwilling to look at the phenomena of nature unless through the clouded spectacles of their prejudices, and accordingly, even the most simple facts are frequently enveloped in a shroud of mysticism and fallacy. From this source of illusion, all the fables of magic and sorcery, once so prevalent throughout the world, appear to have derived their origin. Ages frequently elapse in this state of mental darkness and delusion, and mankind actually become afraid of even attempting to emerge out of this obscurity of ignorance into the light of knowledge. They are surrounded for a long period by a dense cloud of prejudices and false notions, which, at length, mingling with their habitual conceptions, it becomes exceedingly difficult to dispel by the torch of science and of truth. The simple facts, which may now be satisfactorily explained by the modern psychological discoveries of animal magnetism, are, in a great measure, identical with those which, in former times, adopted without any investigation into their true origin and nature, and disguised by the coloring of a vivid imagination and a lively fancy, lay at the foundation of all the fables of magic and sorcery, 
with which they were subsequently identified. Somnia, terrores, magicos, miracula, sagas. Mankind in barbarous ages are accustomed to look at nature through the mist of their ignorance and prejudices, which conceal the true aspect of the objects from their bewildered eyes. Hence the long reign of intellectual darkness, false philosophy, and impure religion. Erroneous notions, indeed, which have been suffered to prevail for ages, are with difficulty eradicated, even from such minds as have become emancipated, in some measure, from many of the errors and prejudices of previous and less enlightened ages. And even the philosophers who had addicted themselves to the cultivation of what have been called the exact sciences are not always exempted as it is sometimes imagined from the common infirmity of being seduced by the vulgar prejudices of less enlightened minds. Tycho Brahe, the modern restorer of astronomical science, that most indefatigable observer of the starry heavens, who made such a number of valuable observations within the department of his favorite studies, and was so indefatigable to the investigation of facts. Even this great matter-of-fact philosopher divided his time between the study of astronomy and the researches of alchemy. He also patronized the doctrines of judiciary astrology, and a great portion of his books were devoted to the defense and propagation of these empty reveries. His successor, Kepler, the precursor of Newton, the most profound physical philosopher of his age, attributed the motions of the celestial bodies to certain animal forces, and wrote a treatise on the mysterious properties of numbers. Newton himself, the most illustrious physical philosopher of his own, or of any age, after explaining the laws of the material universe, wrote a commentary on the apocalypse. Indeed, the influence of this mystical disposition, even among very practical men, appears to be more common than is generally suspected, and a notable instance of the occasional predominance of such hallucinations even in men who have distinguished themselves in the Department of Material Science occurs in the well-known case of Emanuel Swedenborg. But another, and in some degree an opposite aberration in the domain of scientific research, deserves to be commemorated as still more opposite to the science we are about to submit to the consideration of our readers. For a considerable period, the efforts of philosophers have been principally directed to the discovery and appreciation of those mechanical forces which appear to regulate the motions of the material universe, and which have been found to be susceptible of rigid calculation And the labors of those eminent men who have cultivated this field of investigation have given a decided bias to the study of material nature and of the action of those physical forces which are recognized as predominating in the external universe. We should be most unwilling to attempt to derogate in any degree from the legitimate fame of those enterprising and intelligent philosophers, whose laudable exertions have tended to the development of so many interesting and useful results. But we feel ourselves compelled to acknowledge that, in our humble opinion, there have attempted to solve only one portion of the grand problem of nature. Nay, we suspect that the very success of their achievements has had a tendency to discourage, and consequently to retard the solution of the other, 
and still more interesting portion of the inquiry. Nature, we would observe, presents us with two different, but in our opinion, correlative subjects of investigation the external universe and the percipient mind. All philosophy must be incomplete if it does not embrace both of these objects of research. Without a mind to perceive and comprehend it, no external universe could exist, and mind has its peculiar properties as well as matter. But in the midst of that scientific regeneration which has taken place in modern times, philosophy has become almost entirely one-sided. Our attention is principally or almost wholly directed towards external objects, and the study of the intelligent and percipient mind with all its active energies and passive susceptibilities, psychology, has been utterly neglected or even contemned amidst the materialistic tendencies of the age. In short, we would appear to have become incapable of distinguishing the various accidental modes of the exercise of our perceptive faculties, occasioned by the different conditions of our physical organs and the various states and conditions of the sensitive powers. The consequence of this has been that when we happen to stumble upon a phenomenon which appears foreign to the usual train of our ideas, but which we find it impossible to reject in toto, we become incapable of appreciating its true nature and value, and are induced either to overlook it altogether as something utterly anomalous and incomprehensible, or to refer it to certain imaginary causes. In such cases, the reputed learned are probably the least capable of exercising a sound and impartial judgment in consequence of their prepossessions. To all such problems, they at once give a dogmatic solution, without giving themselves the trouble of instituting an experimental inquiry. A new truth, however, which, when rightly apprehended, is capable of throwing additional light upon some particular department of our knowledge, frequently substitutes reality for illusion, and shows that things are occasionally different in nature from what they appear to be in our preconceived systems. But unreasoning dogmatism is itself a mental disease, frequently a very obstinate or even incurable distemper, and it is always a very difficult matter to abandon opinions once seriously entertained, even upon insufficient evidence. And a particular habit of thinking, according to a common proverb, becomes a second nature. Ponir difficile est que placure dure. If we cast our eyes over the ages which are past, we shall probably find that a considerable number of the obstacles opposed to the introduction of new truths generally arise from the particular direction given to inquiry by the previous speculations of otherwise distinguished men. New discoveries in every succeeding age may infringe upon some of the opinions and dogmas or even the prejudices of the learned men of their day and generation. And the learned also or the reputed learned, have at all times been the most obstinate opponents of new truths. In the investigation of nature, indeed, it is a very difficult thing to shake off prepossessions, to maintain the clearness and unbiased impartiality of our judgment, and to avoid being misled by our prejudices. It is almost unnecessary to recall to the recollection of our readers the well-known examples of Galileo, Columbus, Harvey, Jenner, etc., 
or to enlarge upon the opposition made to the introduction of inoculation, quinquina, antimony, etc., into medical practice, or to signalize the days not very long past when the use of these remedies and preventatives was characterized as murderous, criminal, and magical. It was no longer ago than the middle of the 18th century that the faculty thus spoke of inoculation and with the same spirit of hostility towards the inoculators as, more recently, in the case of the magnetists, denounced them as hangmen and impostors and their patients as dupes and idiots. It is notorious that the vaccine, upon its first introduction, was equally obnoxious to the faculty. This last-mentioned discovery had been originally made within the memory of living men in a province of England at some distance from the capital, and the practice, like that of magnetism, was placed in the category of dangerous superstitions and delusions, until Jenner, after its condemnation by the faculty, at length obtained a signal triumph over all prejudices by its general introduction into practice. Note. The following just and generous observations upon this subject occur in the biography of Jenner. Let no one hereafter abate the honest zeal of useful pursuit, because his ideas are chilled at first by a universal frigid sneer, or by careless ridicule. Such has ever been the fate of those who labor for the benefit of mankind. Even the wisest among us oppose innumerable prejudices to the acknowledgment of a new truth. And happy are those who, like Jenner, survive to witness the triumph of their painful struggles in its promulgation. See Lives of British Physicians. A case similarly illustrative of the jealousy of the medical profession occurred not very long ago in France. M. Boudouin attained eminence as chief physician to the Army of the Alps. He is considered a leading authority in military medicine and wrote some instructive letters on the French colony of Algeria. Some years ago, he was one of the managers of the hospital at Toulon, and after some interesting experiments on the effects of arsenic, he introduced an arsenical treatment to the marsh fever, under which the soldiers from Algeria suffered. The faculty at Paris made a great outcry. The minister was besieged with remonstrances. M. Boudouin was stopped in his treatment and threatened with a judicial inquiry. But he had succeeded. The government protected him. He was suffered to proceed. And his method was soon afterwards professionally recognized. He afterwards rose rapidly in his profession. Such instances assuredly ought to have the effect of rendering us more cautious in rejecting facts without an adequate investigation of their nature, truth, and value merely because they may appear at first sight to be inconsistent with some of the notions we may have been previously led to entertain in regard to the powers and phenomena of nature. Theories, frequently the offspring of misconception or of too partial and limited inquiry, must not be permitted to invalidate facts. And there is nothing more adverse to the advancement and ultimate establishment of truth than inveterate prejudices and preconceptions. Animal magnetism, upon its first introduction to the scientific world, experienced the same fate with these other discoveries to which we have alluded. 
By the learned men of the day, it was scouted and ridiculed as an errant imposture. Its adherents were stigmatized as mountebanks and dupes. But after the elapse of years of contentious controversy, and that too in a scientific age, this important discovery also obtained a signal triumph over its ignorant, interested, and prejudiced opponents. Many of those who had previously controverted it upon philosophical grounds had at length the candor to acknowledge their error and became its most valuable supporters. The serious opponents, indeed, are now reduced to a very small number, and those not remarkably distinguished for their scientific attainments or philosophical candor. It must not be disguised, however, that while magnetic science is becoming more and more extensively diffused, there are still a few who regard this branch of science with considerable jealousy and suspicion, as apparently tending in its consequences, to subvert certain other notions which are supposed to be of primary importance to society. But this idea, too, in our humble opinion, is entirely founded upon a misapprehension. No one truth can possibly militate against another truth. The antagonism, if any, consists not in the things themselves, but in the erroneous conceptions of the human mind. And we must not determine the reality of one fact by its presumed inconsistency with another. We ought to accept the phenomena of nature as we find them developed by our experience and endeavor to reconcile them with each other, and not to aggravate presumed discrepancies. For by adopting the latter course, we shall retard instead of promoting the advancement of general science. That the sun makes a diurnal circuit round the earth is believed to be a fact by many even at the present day. Their belief is founded upon the apparent evidence of their senses and they laugh at the philosophers who maintain the contrary proposition, as visionaries and mystics. We are all convinced, or at least profess to be convinced, of the uncertainty of mere theories, and of the absurdity of denying positive facts, merely because they appear to be hostile to our preconceived notions of the powers of nature, and their various modes of manifestation. And yet, we still find individuals who, although apparently satisfied of this truth, do not hesitate to reject the doctrine of animal magnetism, not exactly because it absolutely contradicts any of the known laws of nature. For there has never yet been proved, but merely because the phenomena it presents to our view appear to lead to consequences different from the dominant notions of the age in regard to the powers and susceptibilities of the animal organism. We reason a priori from the presumptions of our own minds instead of a posteriori from the phenomena actually presented by nature to our contemplation. We first endeavor to persuade ourselves that a thing is impossible, and then proceed to deny the fact of its actual existence upon that presumption, in the teeth of all evidence, even the most cogent. We commence by asking ourselves whether a certain phenomena is possible, instead of inquiring into the means of establishing the fact of its reality. And we then proceed to pronounce judgment, not upon evidence, but upon prejudice. The result of such a vicious method of proceeding is just this. From a limited number of ascertained phenomena, we deduce certain general laws, which we regard as the sole laws of nature applicable to the particular circumstances and reject all other facts excepting those which we conceive to be capable of being explained upon this arbitrary criterion. It is this vicious method of reasoning which has led some philosophers to the rejection of the phenomena of animal magnetism, 
without adequate investigation, and upon the absurd pretext that, in recognizing these, we should run the risk of bringing back to the minds of men to the belief in occult causes. And do we not daily find men who continually reproach the magnetists for relating facts which they do not pretend to be able to explain? But it may be reasonably asked, what do we actually know? Of what can we thoroughly explain the causes? Let us suppose two phenomena, A and B, which are so connected together that when A appears, B will invariably follow. We necessarily assume that B takes place because A exists, and therefore we say that A is the cause of B. Upon the present occasion, we have no need to enter into any abstract metaphysical discussion in regard to the nature of the connection between cause and effect. It is sufficient for our present purpose to state the simple fact. Whether this connection results from repeated experience or from a necessary law of our mental constitution, we may leave to the determination of metaphysicians. We are only concerned with the fact itself. But the human mind is not content to rest at this stage of the inquiry. It desires to proceed farther. And after having found the proximate cause of a particular phenomena, it attempts to discover the cause of the cause, and so onward until it arrives at a primitive cause, beyond which it cannot go. Several phenomena appear to stand in no regular relation towards each other. When we attempt to ascend to their common source, we feel ourselves compelled to ascribe them to the same general law which we recognize as primitive. As one of the fundamental conditions which are necessary to the existence of the universe, this process of reducing several phenomena under one general law is what is commonly called inductive reasoning. Such a process conducted Newton, from the most simple observation, to the discovery of the great law of universal attraction, or gravitation. A somewhat similar process, originally founded, it is true, upon an hypothesis, led Copernicus to his grand discovery. From the motion of the earth, he inferred the movements of all the celestial bodies, and this inference was confirmed by correct calculations. Beyond this, we cannot proceed. When we have once established a general law of nature, we have reached the limit assigned to our faculties, and must take our stand on the primitive will and fiat of the great creator of the universe. For who would otherwise attempt to explain the cause of a general law? The true philosopher endeavors to connect the various phenomena of the universe in such a manner as to elicit one or more of these general laws. And it is in this way, and in this way alone, that we can best contribute to the completion of the sciences. To attempt to go beyond this point is an error into which no man of sound sense and philosophical tact will readily fall. When we have once arrived, therefore, at such general laws in any one department of investigation, it is evident that we can proceed no farther in the explanation of particular natural phenomena. But it is equally evident that, as we cannot flatter ourselves with the notion that we have arrived at a knowledge of all laws of nature in the material and moral world, we are not entitled to reject any real phenomena, merely because we cannot immediately explain it upon any of those theories deducted from the facts which we have already discovered. Such conduct would imply a gratuitous and unwarrantable limitation of the progressive march and development of the human mind, and an attempt to describe a narrow circle beyond which we must deny that anything can exist or become known. 
In some cases, indeed, we resort to the expression occult cause, but as a primary cause can only be known from the effects it produces. It is evident that by occult cause we can only mean a cause of which the whole effects have not yet been properly determined. If it were otherwise, we should be compelled to acknowledge that everything in the universe was governed by occult causes. What we would ask, is there more occult than the influence of man's will on his corporeal movements? Now, what is the objection generally made to animal magnetism? The antagonists of this branch of science assert that the admission of the phenomena it embraces has a tendency to reintroduce the belief in occult causes. Do they mean to allege, by this expression, that the ultimate cause which produces these phenomena is unknown to us? If so, they are quite right in a certain sense. And magnetism has this in common with every branch of our knowledge. Do they mean to allege, on the other hand, that the effects of magnetism are not yet sufficiently known to enable us to determine exactly how they may be modified by the organic state and idiosyncrasy of the individual who produces or manifests them, and by other influential causes and conditions yet unknown? Here they are right again. But what are we entitled to infer from this? Nothing more than these phenomena ought to be more carefully observed and more attentively studied under all their conditions and in all their bearings than has hitherto been the case. Those individuals who have made every possible effort to attract public attention to the interesting phenomena of animal magnetism, who endeavor to reduce them under one or more general laws and to determine the mode and conditions of their production and manifestation, cannot surely be justly accused of a desire to introduce a lax method into philosophy. Such a charge, we presume to think, is much more applicable to those who decline to observe the facts presented to them by nature, under the pretense that they are impossible, who proceed to decide upon mere presumptions, and refuse to recognize a particular faculty in man which is capable of being substantiated by the most demonstrative of all evidence, that of our senses. Kinesi sunt veri, ratio quoc falsa fit omni. Newton ascribed the physical motions of the universe to attraction. The Cartesians attributed the same motions to certain vortices, which on their hypothesis drew these bodies along with them in their movements and the latter accused the former of having recourse to an occult cause. Voltaire, who was one of the first propagators of the Newtonian doctrines in France, said, in discussing this subject, Those who believe in occult causes are subjected to ridicule, but we ought rather to ridicule those who do not. And in truth, we find nothing but occult causes in the universe, not even excepting the vortices of Descartes, were they otherwise admissible. The hypothesis of Newton, however, became generalized into a universal law of material nature, and thus explained the principle of the mundane motions. Without entering farther, however, into the discussion of the question regarding cause and effect, we shall proceed to remark that a vast number of phenomena have occurred since the creation of the world, which have been variously ascribed to certain obscure and suppositious causes. These phenomena have been observed in all ages of the world, from the earliest period of history down to our own times. So strange and unaccountable have they appeared to be that, until a very recent period, mankind seemed to have universally agreed in ascribing them to supernatural causes, 
and in referring them to the immediate action of the deity, or at least of certain divine or demoniacal beings. In comparatively recent times, however, certain inquirers into the phenomena of nature have attempted to explode this superstitious view of the matter and to explain the phenomena in question upon natural principles and to reduce them under general laws. The facts themselves have been carefully collected and exposed to the torch of philosophical investigation. Some of these individuals, however, who had previously asserted a prescriptive right to the exclusive possession of these facts, have frequently risen up in arms against the new claimants, and endeavored, by force or fraud, to exclude the alleged intruders from this hitherto reputed sacred territory. And in this attempt, they have been seconded and encouraged by the vulgar and uninquiring. But when the title of these fiery antagonists comes to be rigidly examined, it will be found to be surreptitious, defective, and consequently invalid. In the following pages, it will be our business to demonstrate that the phenomena in question are merely the natural effects of natural causes. They have indeed been indiscriminately appropriated to themselves by the enthusiastic devotees of all religious denominations since the creation of the universe, and pressed into the service of every sect. While extravagant zeal and devotional excitement have been found to be a fertile source of their development and manifestation, but the views here alluded to have been the prolific source of many and serious aberrations. The blind zeal of these sectaries, indeed, while it has confirmed the evidence in favor of the reality of the facts in question, only tended to place their religion upon a false and untenable foundation, and consequently, to weaken its supports and to diminish its permanence. A religion built up entirely on the substratum of pretended miracles must necessarily be a weak and perishable thing, and the progress of general intelligence makes sad havoc upon all miraculous beliefs. Note, the phenomena presented to us by the practice of animal magnetism are said by shamefully ignorant, impudent, or silly persons to be pretended miracles. If this be asserted in the case of the scientific magnetists, the allegation is utterly false and calumnious. Let it not be imagined, however, that we absolutely deny the possibility of miracles, or foolishly pretend to limit the power of the Almighty, which would be equally irrational and impious. But the inscrutable wisdom of the great creator and governor of the universe cannot be supposed capable of exhibiting itself in action in an arbitrary, capricious, and contradictory manner. For such conduct would imply imperfection, and would therefore be derogatory to the character and attributes of the deity, in whom there can be no variableness nor shadow of turning. All nature is God's nature constant and invariable in its manifestations under their proper conditions. And we may be assured that these manifestations must have been the same in kind. However apparently modified by circumstances throughout all ages of time, the faculties of man, on the other hand, are gradually developed both in the individual and in the species. The knowledge of the infant is rectified and enlarged by the mature judgment of the adult and the same system of development is manifested in the progress of society at large. The ideas of one age are corrected, modified, and extended by the more matured experiences and judgment of succeeding times. Many erroneous notions are exploded. Many new truths are discovered. 
and the human intellect gradually expands during the unceasing process of mental development. New truths are gradually elicited, and although these may be for a considerable period defaced by some erroneous conceptions, imperfect generalizations, and false interpretations, yet these last may ultimately be corrected by farther research, until the whole of our knowledge approaches nearer and nearer to absolute, or at least to relative certainty. In the following pages, the author has humbly endeavored to contribute his might towards the advancement of one particular branch of human research. The subject he has attempted to elucidate has been hitherto much misrepresented and vilified. He shall be happy if his well-meant endeavors, however inadequate, shall succeed in attracting the attention of more powerful minds to the investigation of those interesting but hitherto neglected phenomena, which he has endeavored to bring under their notice. The author of this work is perfectly aware that many of the facts founded upon in the following pages must appear exceedingly startling to such of his readers as may come to the perusal of these narratives without any previous preparation. But he would entreat all such persons, otherwise competent to the investigation, to lay aside all prejudices and prepossessions, and to weigh the evidence with calmness, candor, and impartiality. If in this mood we think he cannot fail to perceive that the series of phenomena has been presented to his notice, from the earliest records of human society down to the present times, which, if fairly examined and attentively studied, cannot fail to produce a firm conviction of the essential truth of those curious facts, which, however occasionally disguised by the false notions of former ages, in regard to their origin and character, have in comparatively recent times been investigated with more philosophical accuracy and acumen, and legitimately relied upon by the disciples of animal magnetism, the solid and permanent proofs of the authenticity and universality of the facts upon which their science is founded. Finally, the author has appealed to an uninterrupted series of phenomena of a consentaneous character and complexion, occurring in all ages of the world's history and related by numerous authors without any view to the establishment or support of the modern doctrine of animal magnetism, which indeed was until lately entirely unknown. These facts are generally related and attested by various authors of reputation and credit, and they have been laid before the reader of this work with as much accuracy as a diligent inquiry could ensure. The various authorities for these facts have been adduced when possible, so that the reader may have an opportunity of testing the accuracy and the value of the evidence upon which the different narratives rest. With these prefatory observations, the author submits his labors to the judgment of the inquisitive and candid reader. Some time after the preceding portion of this preface was written, my ingenious and respected friend, Dr. Braid of Manchester, was kind enough to transmit to me a copy of his recently published Observations on Trance, or Human Hibernation, in which some curious cases are narrated of individuals who permitted themselves to be buried alive, for considerable periods of time, and were afterwards disinterred and brought to life again. If these cases can be considered as perfectly authentic, they must assuredly be very interesting to physiologists as constituting a new chapter to the science of life. But, without attempting to impunge the veracity of the narrators of these singular occurrences, 
we should feel disposed to suspend our judgment in regard to their reality until we obtain farther evidence of the perfect authenticity of the facts. But this is not a subject upon which we feel disposed to animadvert upon the present occasion. Other topics are alluded to by Dr. Braid, and other opinions expressed by the author of the observations, which, we are sorry to say, we consider rather uncandid, uncourteous, and unjust towards his fellow laborers in the magnetic mine and which the learned doctor himself would not be slow to resent in an adversary of his own peculiar doctrines. Upon these sensitive ebullitions, the author of the present treatise deems it his duty to animadvert as briefly as possible. I believe, says Dr. Braid, that the great cause of the opposition which has been offered to the acceptance of the truth of the genuine phenomena of hypnotism and mesmerism has arisen from the extravagance of the mesmerists, who have contended for the reality of clairvoyance in some of their patients, such as seeing through opaque bodies, and investing them with the gifts and graces of omniscience, mesmeric intuition, and universal knowledge. Pretensions are like a mockery of the human understanding, as they are opposed to all the known laws of physical science. In support of the above sentiments, continues Dr. Braid, I gladly avail myself of the following quotation from an article in Fraser's Magazine for July 1845, page 3, by a most acute observer and forcible and clever writer. When writing regarding the feats of the Pythoness, whom the writer no doubt most acutely observed, the author says, Now we take it that the Pythoness, not by the objective operation of magnetism from without, but by the subjective or personal influence of internal agencies, was enabled intensely to concentrate her conceptive faculties, aided by the workings of her perceptive powers which had drunk in certain transactions of the outer world and stored them up in her memory, from the thousand influences which must ever be at work around her in her waking state, and concentrate them upon a given purpose whether it were to forecast the probable duration of a man's life or the fall of a kingdom. By throwing herself into the nervous sleep described by Mr. Braid, and we mean to show how commonly this has been practiced from the earliest times, she becomes, as it were, isolated from external influences and transactions and intensely concentrated in the world within herself. In this condition, the memory is almost supernaturally vivid. She remembers circumstances in the character of a man's life and remarkable vicissitudes in the history of the kingdom. She reasons logically from the petitio principi to the rational conclusion. All the material facts in both cases, that of the man and that of the kingdom, pass in review before her. She weighs them with scrupulous nicety in combination and in their relative bearings, and she arrives at a conclusion which surprises everybody, because it is so much more accurate and positive than any which could have been attained by faculties distracted and disturbed by the ever-varying and constantly succeeding events of the outer world. It was by such a long and laborious and concentrative process, no doubt, that the Python S discovered that Croesus, king of Lydia, was actually dressing a turtle. And this, says the dogmatic writer of the article in question, is what the mesmerists call clairvoyance. 
Indeed. Well, if this be so, then is the author of this treatise free to admit that, after studying mesmerism with considerable assiduity and attention during nearly half a century, he must now, in his old age, be content to retrace his steps, to go to school again, and to fall back upon his books and his experiments and observation of the facts. But, in reality, this is not what the mesmerists call clairvoyance, nor anything like it, but the very reverse. And we are actually astonished that any gentleman of ordinary intelligence and perspicacity, upon mature study of the subject he attempts to elucidate, and a strict and impartial observation of the relative facts, should have been betrayed into such a manifest absurdity. Every individual who professes to enlighten the public upon any philosophical subject should recollect that his object ought to be non fumen ex fulgor sed ex fumo der lucem. We cannot stop to point out an animadvert upon the manifold blunders pervading the foregoing exposition, if blunders they be, and not willful misrepresentations, for we would rather impute them to ignorance but must return to our friend Mr. Braid, who at least ought to be better informed. Although we are disposed to doubt whether even he has yet succeeded in sounding the depths of the doctrine he attempts to explain, we have not, indeed, had the good fortune to meet with any scientific mesmerist who invested his patience with the gifts and graces of omniscience. Although, no doubt, there may be certain religious enthusiasts who, misled by their ill-regulated feelings travel a considerable way upon this path of mystical exaggeration. But to us, we are sorry to say, it now appears pretty evident, from his depreciatory innuendos, that Mr. Braid is very desirous of entirely supplanting animal magnetism, or mesmerism, by his own new doctrines of hypnotism, and thus of becoming entitled to be considered as the inventor of an original science, and, as a friend, I must take the liberty of telling him frankly that I do not think he has the smallest chance of succeeding. Hypnotism, indeed, embraces but a small portion or fragment of animal magnetism or mesmerism, and it is evidently nothing more than an offshoot from that science. Note, even the appellation hypnotism, however, is not original. The same or similar expressions derived from the Greek word sleep were occasionally employed by the ancient Greeks in somewhat the same sense as the Latin word incubatio. Perhaps it may embrace as much as may be required for mere medical purposes, but it totally excludes the philosophical scope and importance of the magnetic doctrines. We had at one time hoped that the learned doctor himself would have ultimately become aware of this position of his favorite science. But now we more than suspect that he is anxious to claim the merit of an original discoverer and to get rid of his troublesome and embarrassing precursor. Much, however, as we are disposed to applaud the assiduity and zeal with which our learned friend has hitherto prosecuted his hypnotic researches, we have no hesitation in expressing our humble opinion that he would have acted more ingeniously and more usefully towards the interest of science by associating his labors with those of his elder brethren, the magnetists, and by merely adopting a portion of their discoveries, depreciating their merits, and attempting to supersede their interesting results by the introduction of a new and partial science of his own. 
Dr. Braid indeed speaks of the pretensions of the mesmerists as a like, a mockery of the human understanding, as they are opposed to all the known laws of physical science. Does Dr. Braid then acknowledge no science but the merely physical? And is he, moreover, acquainted with all the laws, even of physical science, with all their modifications, various under peculiar circumstances? Were this the case, we should indeed have reason to dread an encounter with such a formidable antagonist, for our pretensions are far more humble. For our own part, indeed, and we believe we may answer for all our fellow magnetists, we make no such pretensions as those ascribed to us by Dr. Braid. We merely profess to interrogate nature, and as far as possible, endeavor faithfully to record her answers. Like other mortals, indeed, and even Dr. Braid himself, we think with his ally, the most acute observer and forcible and clever writer, will scarcely be bold enough to plead an exemption from this common infirmity of our nature. We may be occasionally liable to mistake humanum est error, but we are ever ready to correct such mistakes when candidly pointed out to us. We advance no claims to infallibility, nor do we recognize it in others. And the censure even of Dr. Braid must be more temperate, more disinterested, as well as more just, before we can bring ourselves to bow to this authority and submit to his castigation. Amicus Plato, Amicus Socrates, said Magus, Amica Veritas. Will Dr. Braid permit us to call his attention to a late interesting publication by a gentleman whom the learned doctor himself, we should think, must admit to be no mean adept in physiological science and no unqualified arbiter between us? To us, indeed, it is quite delightful to find that gallant veteran physiologist and most learned and amiable man, Dr. Herbert Mayo, once more buckling under his scientific armor in defense of the facts and principles of magnetic science. See Letters on the Truths Contained in Popular Superstitions by Herbert Mayo, M.D. 1849. This small but very valuable volume is written in a light and pleasing style. The propositions which the learned and accomplished author endeavors to establish are confirmed by many opposite and striking examples and the theoretical views propounded must have great weight with all those who are capable of appreciating them, as proceeding from one of the most ingenious and successful investigators of the nervous system. The views of such a distinguished physiologist as Dr. Mayo, therefore, upon such a subject must be very valuable, and the case and the vivacity with which his opinions are communicated must render his lucubrations most acceptable to every description of readers. The following treatise having been wholly written before the author had an opportunity of seeing Dr. Mayo's publication, he was, of course, precluded from availing himself to the full extent of the views of the great physiologist upon this most interesting subject. But he would earnestly recommend the book to the notice of all who feel an interest in the subject. The publication, as its title denotes, appears in the epistolary form and in the several letters the reader will find a number of ingenious disquisitions on the following subjects connected with the mesmeric doctrines. 
Baron Reichenbach's experiments, discovery of the odd force, or Odile, the divining rod, vampirism, ghosts, trance, dreams, somnambulism, catalepsy, religious delusions, witches and witchcraft, mesmerism, etc. All these subjects are treated in a most pleasant and attractive style, and at the same time with great philosophic acumen. And for the most part, the ingenious author displays a profound and accurate knowledge of the principles of magnetic science. Some of his professional brethren, indeed of the skeptical and hypnotic schools, may perhaps be disposed to tax the learned writer of these letters, as they do all other magnetic philosophers, with credulity. But the accomplished author gives at least sound and substantial reasons for the faith that is in him. Credulity may be said to be a belief contrary to reason, or resting upon insufficient grounds of evidence. This, however, is an error with which Dr. Mayo cannot justly be charged, without demonstrating the falsehood or inadequacy of the evidence upon which he relies. An obiter dictum in such circumstances is of no value. An irrational abuse of mesmerism and its intelligent advocates has now grown quite stale and altogether unpalatable in the present position of the science. Fools deride, philosophers investigate, and Dr. Mayo is a philosopher as well as a physician and physiologist. Dr. Mayo justly observes that a new truth has to encounter three normal stages of opposition. In the first, it is denounced as an imposture. In the second, that is, when it is beginning to force itself into notice, it is cursorily examined and plausibly explained away. In the third, or qui bono stage, it is decreed as useless and hostile to religion. And when it is finally admitted, it passes only under a protest that it has been perfectly known for ages, a proceeding intended to make the new truth ashamed of itself and wish it had never been born. Such indeed has been the treatment which animal magnetism has experienced from the vulgar or trading class of medical practitioners and theologians in this country. The learned and intelligent have preserved a more prudent reserve. Some of the latter indeed have not been ashamed to join the ranks of the magnetists. The high and well-merited reputation indeed of Dr. Mayo, together with his natural candor, enable him to speak with much more discrimination and impartiality in regard to the character and manifestations of some of those clairvoyants, who have occasionally exhibited their extraordinary faculties in public, than the unintelligent, at least the uninformed, skeptics. He speaks thus of Alexis, the Parisian somnambulist, whose powers of clairvoyance have been depreciated and even ridiculed, by some of the less candid members of the medical profession in this country. The most celebrated of these persons at present, says Dr. Mayo, is M. Alexis, a friend and patient of mine. A gentleman educated to the bar took occasion recently to consult M. Alexis about his health. The opinion which M. Alexis delivered when entranced on the case is more precise and minute than I had ventured to express. But it agrees with all I had observed, and I see no reason why it should not be strictly exact. The treatment which M. Alexis has recommended does not differ at all from that which any medical man of experience might reasonably have ordered in such a case. 
I have known other instances in which the intuition of entranced persons has furnished them with a seemingly equally accurate knowledge of the complaints of persons either brought into their presence or otherwise into relation with them. The prescriptions of persons in a lucid trance seem to me mostly shrewd guesses founded upon the nature of the case and what is popularly known of the action of remedies. Sometimes, however, particularly when mesmerism or loss of blood are advised, the ingenious author might have added, when certain drugs are prescribed, the performers seem to have an extraordinary sagacity in measuring the dose of the remedy. After mentioning the answers of the clairvoyant to some other profound questions, Dr. Mayo proceeds. My friend then put into the hand of Mr. Alexis my note, and asked him if he could tell anything about the writer. M. Alexis said, The writer is bald, short in stature, something above fifty years of age, has lost the use of his legs, he is in bed. He has a very active mind. He is a physician. Each shot hit the mark. He lives on the sea coast. This, my friend, denied. No, said M. Alexis on reflection, it is not the sea, but a river. He lives on the banks of the Rhine, about twenty leagues from Frankfurt, the bullseye, again. We might refer to a considerable number of additional instances of the manifestation of similar phenomena to those exhibited by M. Alexis, as described by Dr. Mayo. We might refer to a considerable number of additional instances of the manifestation of similar phenomena to those exhibited by M. Alexis, as described by Dr. Mayo. We shall adduce only the following, which was observed by M. Van Gert and related in his work entitled Mnemosyne, or a collection of remarkable cases of animal magnetism, which was published at Amsterdam in the year 1815. The patient was a young man who possessed an extraordinary acuteness in discovering, or rather in feeling, the diseases of other persons. This gift was manifested not only when the patient placed his hand in that of the clairvoyant, but even when clothes were sent to him, which had been worn for some days on the body, placed immediately in a silken wrapper, sent to him and felt with the points of his fingers. The following instance, which took place in the presence of several unexceptionable witnesses, male and female, is demonstrative of the fact. During one sitting, an article of the description mentioned was sent from a female patient whose person and disease were equally unknown to the clairvoyant and to all the individuals present. Having felt the cloth for some time, the patient said, It belongs to a female. This was correct. She is about 48 years old. Right. Her disease is in the stomach. Right again. She has an aversion to food because it excites sickness and vomiting. This was exactly the case. Her sight is weak, and for some time she has been obliged to use glasses. She had done so for some months. All the medicines she takes produce no good effect upon her. Such was the case. When asked whether her disease could be cured, he said, Yes, but not without employing magnetism. And he added, At this moment the lady is suffering from headache above both eyes, but nowhere else. We immediately caused this to be investigated and found it true. I'm not quite sure, he continued, but it appears to me that the lady had a stiff finger in her right hand. He was quite right. 
The thumb of the right hand had been broken and in consequence became stiff. Dr. Mayo afterwards very properly observes that the entranced person is probably always liable to mislead you, either through his view being at that time accidentally obscured or through the influence of preconceived notions on his mind, or through the thoughts of others who are at present influencing him. And an observer must always be on his guard against these unintentional sources of error, as well as against premeditated deception. This is a caution worthy of being more strictly observed by careless and perhaps skeptical experimentalists. According to Dr. Mayo, it is easy theoretically to explain the beneficial results which follow from the daily induction of trance for an hour or so in various forms of disorder of the nervous system, in epilepsy, in the tic douloureux, in nervous palsy, and the like. As long as the state of trance is maintained, so long is the nervous system in a state of repose. It is more or less completely put out of gear. It experiences the same relief which a sprained joint feels when you dispose it in a relaxed position on a pillow. A chance is thus given to the strained nerves of recovering their tone of health. And it is wonderful how many cases of nervous disorder get well at once through these simple means. As it is certain that there is no disease in which the nervous system is not primarily or secondarily implicated, it is impossible to foresee what will prove the limit to the beneficial application of mesmerism in medical practice. In operative surgery, the art is not less available. In trance, the patient is insensible, and a limb may be removed without the operation exciting disturbance of any kind. And what is equally important in all the after-treatment at every dressing, the process of mesmerizing may be resorted to again with no possible disadvantage, but being rather soothing and useful to the patient, independently of the extinction of the dread and suffering of pain. The following account given by Dr. Mayo of the phenomena exhibited by a patient in a state of cataleptic trance is applicable to a variety of other cases and may assist us in explaining many of the most curious phenomena of mesmerism. 1. The organs of sensation are deserted by their natural sensibility. The patient neither feels with the skin, nor sees with the eyes, nor hears with the ears, nor tastes with the mouth. 2. All these senses, however, are not lost. Sight and hearing, if not smell and taste, reappear in some other part, at the pit of the stomach, for instance, or the tips of the fingers. 3. The patient manifests new perceptive powers. She discerns objects all around her, and through any obstructions, partitions, walls or houses, and at indefinite distances. She sees her own inside, as it were, illuminated, and can tell what is wrong in the health of others. She reads the thoughts of others whether present or at indefinite distances. The ordinary obstacles of space and matter vanish to her. So likewise that of time, she foresees future events. Such and more are the capabilities of cataleptic patients, most of whom exhibit them all. Page 99. Dr. Mayo thus discusses the subject of physiological materialism. The author of this treatise feels much gratified in having such an able coadjutor in the dissemination of views for the propagation of which he has now been ridiculed by the skeptics and the scoffers, especially of the medical schools. 
Let us attend to the opinions of the great physiologist upon the important question. The school of physiological materialists hold that the mind is but a function or product of the brain, and cannot therefore admit its separate action. But this fundamental tenet is unsound, even upon considering the analogies of matter alone. What is meant by product? And what does production consist? Let us look for instances. A metal is produced from an ore. Alcohol is produced from saccharine matter. The bones and sinews of an animal are produced from its food. Production, in the strict sense of the word, means the conversion of one substance into another, weight for weight, agreeable with or under mechanical, chemical, and vital laws. If mind be the product of the brain, it must be the conversion of so much brain, weight for weight, into thought and feeling, which is an absurdity. It is indeed true that with the manifestation of each thought and feeling a corresponding decomposition of the brain takes place. But it is equally true that in a voltaic battery in action each movement of electric force developed there is attended with a waste of the metal plates which help to form it. But that waste is not converted into electric fluid. The exact quantity of pure copper which disappears may be detected in the form of sulfate of copper. The electricity was not produced, it was only set in motion by the chemical decomposition. Here is the true material analogy of the relation of the brain up to the mind. Mind, like electricity, is an imponderable force pervading the universe, and there happen to be known to us certain material arrangements through which each may be influenced. We cannot indeed pursue the analogy beyond this step. Consciousness and electricity have nothing farther in common. Their farther relation to the dissimilar arrangements through which they may be excited or disturbed are subjects of totally distinct studies and resolvable into laws which have no affinity and admit of no comparison. It is singular how early in the history of mankind the belief in the separate existence of the soul developed itself as an instinct of our nature. We are truly happy to find our opinions upon these abstruse subjects, corroborated by the ingenious researches of a gentleman who stands in the very first rank of British physiologists. Without farther comment, we leave these opinions, which we adopt as our own, to be digested at their leisure by the hypnotists and other medical skeptics. And in the meantime, we sincerely trust that, notwithstanding the corporeal infirmities incident to age, the life and spirits of Dr. Mayo may yet long be preserved to enable him to please and instruct his friends and the public in general with his valuable lucubrations upon scientific subjects and the chaste and playful character of his style of writing. The only fault we have been able to detect in this spirited and entertaining volume is the ingenious author's appreciation of Mesmer, whose labors, as it appears to us, he has much undervalued. Too little allowance is made for the character of the times, the nature of the discovery, and the peculiar circumstances in which the modern resuscitator of the magnetic doctrines was placed. We have remarked, too, that in speaking of Great Rakes, Dr. Mayo calls him Dr. Great Rex, whereas Great Rakes was a private gentleman who had served in the army and had no pretensions to any knowledge of medicine or philosophy. But ubi plura nitent, etc. Ever since its first introduction into the public notice in modern times by Mesmer, 
the science of animal magnetism has been exposed to much persecution, obloquy, and ridicule, which have considerably retarded the progress of its advancement. It is pretty obvious, however, that all this opposition has arisen from ignorance, misconception, or interested motives. The opponents, therefore, may be divided into two classes. The first includes those who are unable or unwilling to institute such an investigation as might terminate in reasonable conviction. The second embraces a considerable proportion of the members of the medical profession who, after a laborious course of professional study, are unwilling to go to school again and are therefore disposed to depreciate the real value and practical utility of the magnetic discovery. Among the greater proportion, indeed, of those who are uninstructed in the principles of this discovery or have not thoroughly examined the phenomena with which it is conversant, there is a strong and perhaps not altogether unnatural propensity to skepticism. To this we do not much object, for it is a remarkable fact, as the author has elsewhere observed, that all the most obstinate scientific opponents of the system have been subsequently converted into warm adherents of the magnetic doctrines, and that, so far as our inquiries have extended, not a single rational convert has afterwards been induced to abandon his conviction. On the contrary, Many of these original skeptics have become the most valuable adherents and practical expositors of the science. And among these, we find many of the most eminent physicians and philosophers in Europe. It is quite true indeed that we frequently meet in society persons who exhibit astonishment and skepticism when any apparently extraordinary or anomalous magnetic fact happens to be alluded to. But this astonishment and skepticism are the offspring of ignorance, and this, in particular, is a subject upon which no individual is competent to pronounce a decided opinion without previous careful and candid investigation. It is consolatory, however, to observe that in the present times, the doctrine of animal magnetism is gradually becoming less mysterious, and that many new discoveries of the reality of these facts are almost daily dissipating skepticism and extending conviction in the public mind. Sober inquiry is rapidly taking place of irrational doubt and illiberal prejudice. The author of the following treatise, however, is perfectly aware that he may be exposed to a charge of credulity in regard to some of the facts and narratives to which he has had occasion to refer in the following pages. For such a charge, therefore, he is not unprepared. Some authors indeed are afraid of relating or even of alluding to facts which may possibly excite skepticism or even ridicule among the ignorant and the prejudiced. Facts, however, when fully ascertained and accredited by competent inquirers, must be boldly and faithfully proclaimed, especially when they tend, in the opinion of the author, to advance the interests of science and humanity. Truth in all matters, but more especially in relation to scientific research, and still more when it tends to advance the improvement and welfare of mankind, in any particular direction, never can be injurious to society. To every philosopher, therefore, we would recommend the advice of Cicero. The cowardly and incompetent are afraid only of the truth. Perhaps because it is beyond their reach, or it is believed to be incompatible with what they consider to be their interests. But banish truth from the world, and what remains to mankind? A labyrinth or a desert? One of the most important duties of a philosopher indeed, and one of the most difficult too, is 
to set due bounds to the natural credulity or incredulity of his disposition. He ought to believe at once when he finds that nature presents sufficient data to warrant his belief, and in all doubtful cases he ought to encourage a disposition impartially to receive evidence on either side of a proposition, more especially when custom, prejudice, prior opinions drawn from analogy, or any other cause may have induced him to adopt particular views. There are few, however, who become capable of maintaining this moral and intellectual equilibrium. It is well known, for example, what a perplexity an eminent professor of mathematics in Edinburgh, Mr. McLaurin, was once thrown into on receiving from a friend abroad an account of a few of the first discovered and least remarkable effects of that astonishing power, the electric fluid. The professor, liberal, knowing, and candid as he was, could hardly credit the testimony of his friend, and not doubting the veracity of a man he highly esteemed, concluded that a delirium had seized his imagination. A more satisfactory instance of the necessity of suspending a positive judgment in many things where one is inclined to decide without adequate investigation can hardly be imagined. It shows very forcibly the propriety of a disposition to receive evidence concerning the existence of any phenomena in nature, or event in human affairs, however inconsistent either may seem with the received principles of science, or with the maxims that are derived from a limited experience. Goeth, the celebrated German author, a keen and most intelligent observer of nature, although not exactly, so far as we know, a professed magnetist, appears to have been firmly convinced of the existence and phenomena of the magnetic power and susceptibility, as appears, in particular, from his conversations with Eckerman, and he gives several instances of their manifestation. He appears to consider the magnetic influence as something instinctive and peculiar to the animal sensibility. We are all groping, says he, among mysteries and wonders. Besides, one soul may have decided influence upon another, merely by means of its silent present, of which I could relate many instances. It has often happened to me that when I have been walking with an acquaintance and have had a lively image of something in my mind, he has at once begun to speak to me of that very thing. I have also known a man who, without saying a word, could suddenly silence a party engaged in cheerful conversation by the mere power of his mind. Nay, he could introduce a tone which would make everybody feel uncomfortable. We have all something of electrical and magnetic forces within us, and we put forth, like the magnet itself, an attractive or repulsive power, according as we may come in contact with something similar or dissimilar, etc. The following observations of the same illustrious author are equally just and appropriate to our subject. In the sciences, said he, that also is looked upon as property, which has been handed down or taught at the universities, and if anyone advance anything new which contradicts, perhaps threatens to overturn, the creed which we have for years repeated and have handed down to others, all passions are raised against him, and every effort is made to crush him. People resist with all their might. They act as if they neither heard nor could comprehend. They speak of the new view with contempt as if it were not worth the trouble of even so much as an investigation or a regard, and thus a new truth may wait a long time before it can make its way. 
The medical application of animal magnetism or mesmerism has always been viewed with great jealousy by the profession, especially in this country. And the most extraordinary subterfuges are occasionally resorted to in order to evade the evidence or at least to render the practice suspicious. A periodical writer has jocosely observed that criticisms on mesmeric cases are very curious. If you call in a doctor, the cure is ascribed to him. If you do not call in a doctor, it is said that nothing was the matter. The world has often desired to know who is the infallible doctor who is sure to cure you. We have found it out. It is the last doctor who gives you up before you call in the mesmerizer. He, it is, who always cures you. You do not know it. You are dying in ignorance of it. But he is the man. When the mesmerizer has restored you to health, the critics find out that the doctor did it all. This pleasantry is not a mere joke. It is a serious truth. Redentem decir verim quod retat. In concluding this preface, the author may observe that he has retained the designation of animal magnetism for reasons which appear to him to be perfectly satisfactory. It was the first appellation which was given to the science upon the original discovery of the facts. It was used by Paracelsus, Van Helmont, and the early writers upon the subject and it was retained by Mesmer himself, the modern restorer of the doctrine. The designation of Mesmerism is inappropriate. Mesmer was not the original discoverer of the science. He merely revived, confirmed, and enlarged it, and nothing is gained by the change of a name. On the contrary, it can only produce confusion and embarrassment. The author feels exceedingly unwilling to extend this preface, which may perhaps be considered as already too long. But while preparing his treatise for publication, there came into his hands a volume entitled Letters on the Laws of Man's Nature and Development by H.G. Atkinson, F.G.S., and Harriet Martineau, which he considers too important to be passed over without such notice and animadversion as his cursory perusal of the book and his limited time will admit of. Many years ago, probably before Mr. A and Miss M commenced their physiological studies, the author of the following treatise publicly avowed his apprehensions in regard to the contemplated combination of the sciences of animal magnetism and phrenology as a circumstance which would probably operate in a manner prejudicial to the former. His apprehensions have now been fully verified, and the volume alluded to may be considered as the hybrid product of an unnatural conjunction. Time has not altered his first convictions in regard to the fatal consequences of this unhappy combination. Embarked on board the same frail vessel with phrenology, animal magnetism becomes exposed to the fate of suffering shipwreck, along with its associated science. The author, at the same time, took the liberty of expressing his decided conviction that phrenology, when pursued into its legitimate consequences, must ultimately terminate in atheism. The connection was, at that period, faintly denied, or at least evaded, by the phrenologists. Gall, the inventor of the science, however, boldly acknowledged the direct result. In the volume before us, it is at length fully admitted in one of the most wanton and gratuitous attacks that have ever been made. 
not upon the Christian religion only, but upon all religion, whatever. We are now taught by the conclusions at which the authors of these letters have arrived that there is no God, no soul, no future state, no prospect for mankind beyond the grave. Our anticipations have thus been fully realized. Thank God, however disposed to qualify some of its more stringent doctrines when pushed to the extreme, we have still remained an inerascitable conviction of the existence of a supreme being and of the truth of the essential doctrines of Christianity. We never became converts to the pseudo-science of phrenology. We never could hold that thought was the pure and unmodified product of matter. During nearly 40 years of his life, the author happened to be placed in a situation peculiarly favorable to the observation of those facts, which lie at the bottom of the phrenological speculation, and he made ample use of his opportunities. He has carefully examined the heads of hundreds of individuals notorious for the manifestation of particular faculties and propensities, and the general result only demonstrated the utter fallacy of any such test of character as that which has been assumed by the phrenologists. Indeed, it frequently happened that he discovered the very opposite of that of which he was in search. We fully concede to the phrenologists, should they consider this any advantage to their science, that the brain is a most important organ in the animal economy, and that much may depend upon its regular and healthy development. But the same is the case in regard to the stomach, the liver, the heart, and the intestines generally. On the normal development and healthy action of the whole internal viscera. But farther than this, it is conceived we cannot go. Beyond this, speculation cannot proceed with any certainty of a satisfactory result. Thought is not to be found in the viscera, any more than music can be considered as inherent in the strings of a fiddle or the keys of a harpsichord, but in the latter case, in the undulations of the air. But there are secrets in nature connected with the science of mind, which perhaps never will be revealed to our perceptive faculties. It is probably known to many inquisitive readers that the author of this publication has long devoted himself to the study of animal magnetism. And from reading, conversation, and experience, he has been led to form very decided opinions in regard to the character of the phenomena elicited, as well as upon the practical uses and advantages of that study, in a scientific as well as in a practical view. He has ventured to publish some works upon the subject, and he has always considered the advantages of the science as of infinitely greater value in a practical than in a speculative view. Indeed, he has always feared that the very extraordinary phenomena elicited by the practical application of this method might have the effect of turning the heads and disturbing the intellects of certain speculative devotees of this branch of science, and thus compromise the solid advantages of the acquisition. And so it has happened. By means of a forced and unnatural association with phrenology, attempts have been made to render it subservient to the interests of materialism, infidelity, and atheism. In short, the universe, by these speculations, has been deprived of its God, and man of his immortal soul. The author of the following treatise is now an old man, having nearly attained that age which the royal psalmist has assigned as the ordinary limit of human life. 
It is therefore perhaps now too late for him to think of commencing a new work for the purpose of exposing the recent fallacies of the phrenomagnetists. He trusts, however, that this task will speedily be undertaken, and more effectually accomplished by a younger and far abler hand. In the meantime, we may be permitted to express our entire and decided dissent from the speculative conclusions of the authors of the volume now before us, expressing at the same time our grateful acknowledgments for the communication of some curious facts which had previously escaped our attention but have now altered our previous views and convictions. To all such avowed atheists as Mr. Atkinson and Miss Martineau, we would, in the meantime, oppose, instead of prosaic argument, the following beautiful and appropriate lines of the great German poet Schiller in his animated and highly interesting and philosophical tragedy of Don Carlo, the Marquis Posa, in represented as thus addressing King Philip of Spain. Look around thee, sire, throughout this glorious universe. On freedom are its foundations laid, and oh, how rich through freedom. He, the great creator, throws the worm into a drop of dew, permits caprice to revel in the dark abodes of foul corruption. Your creation, sire, how small, how poor, how lifeless. He, to leave the glorious march of freedom undisturbed, permits the grimly host of ills to rage throughout his boundless universe. We see not him, the artist. He withdraws from sight and veils himself in his eternal laws. These the free thinker sees, not him. And why a god, says he, the world is self-sufficient, and never did the Christian's homage more exalt the eternal and invisible Lord of all than this free thinker's empty blasphemy. The free thinker indeed merely adopts a change of names. The theist speaks of God and providence. The atheist talks of nature and necessity. But what is nature, and whence comes necessity? Are they not a mere paltry substitute for the Creator and His eternal and immutable laws? Chapter 1 there is no part of the wide field of science, perhaps, which has been less cultivated, especially in modern times, than the philosophy of the human constitution, comprehending its peculiar endowments and the various phases in which its more interesting phenomena may be occasionally presented to our serious contemplation. The study of this particular subject indeed appears to be not only unpopular in the present age, it is even seriously reprobated by many timid or prejudiced inquirers, who seem to be of opinion, erroneously, we presume to think, that the results to which such an investigation tends to conduct us may eventually prove adverse to certain other dogmas of belief, which they have been accustomed to cherish, and to regard as demonstrated and incontrovertible truths, or to subvert some other opinions which they may have inconsiderately embraced as essential and paramount facts. Such notions and such conduct, however, betray a degree not of ignorance merely, but of moral weakness or cowardice, which is utterly degrading to an intelligent, candid, and inquiring mind, incompatible with all freedom of thought and impartiality of judgment. And consequently, they become a serious impediment to the progressive advancement of science and civilization. 
But in opposition to all such prejudices, we are disposed to hold with the poet that the proper study of mankind is man. And we may be perfectly certain that no one truth, when once satisfactorily ascertained to be a truth, can possibly mitigate against another truth. The incompatibility exists only in the mind which creates it and demonstrates the narrowness of its conceptions. No one truth was ever substantially injured by another truth when both were properly understood and duly restricted within the just limits of their own particular application. Although, indeed, our conceptions may be occasionally enlarged, modified, or corrected by the diligent exercise of our intellectual faculties and the gradual investigation of nature and all its various forms and stages of development, we hear much, indeed, about credulity in the acceptation of phenomena. Now, credulity may be defined to be a belief without any adequate grounds of conviction in regard to the reality of its object. And such a credulity, when is combined as it frequently is with superstition, or with some other mental hallucination, becomes one of the most powerful but most fallacious and, in some instances, the most mischievous incentives to erroneous beliefs. The superstitious man is unable or afraid to exercise his reasoning faculties. He is unwilling to inquire or incapable of directing his intellectual and moral faculties towards the impartial investigation of truth. He is perfectly satisfied with the first partial convictions which his undisciplined mind has once been led, however incautiously to embrace and obstinately indisposed to suffer them to be disturbed or modified by any other, even more matured views. Hence, the powerful and permanent influence which all false systems of religion and philosophy have exercised over the minds of their respective devotees, and the mischievous effects that they have frequently exercised on society. Christianity alone, when embraced in its genuine purity and truth, can submit to the test of the strictest philosophical investigation and come out from the trial unscathed. But even the Christian religion itself may be and has been corrupted and debased in all times by injudicious culture in an erroneous direction. Superstition, the offspring of false and degrading views of religion, when opposed, as it frequently is, to science, has a powerful tendency to subserve the purpose of ignorance by discouraging the cultivation of learning and philosophy, which last can never prove detrimental to genuine and pure religion however inimical they may be to false views and a degrading worship. The more enlightened the mind, the more will it be disposed to render due and acceptable homage to the great author of all created being, and to submit with reverence to the laws he has framed for the government of the universe. The intellectual education of mankind, however, in consequence of the limited nature and gradual development of his several faculties, is very slowly progressive and continually exposed to various interruptions. The knowledge of one age is frequently modified or entirely superseded by that which follows in the next, and it occasionally happens that, during the onward march of improvement, while many errors may have been abandoned, some not unimportant truths, if not entirely lost, are in some danger of being obliterated or sacrificed along with the previous untenable hypotheses. It becomes of some consequence, therefore, to pause at certain stages of civilization and to take a retrospective view of our past progress for the purpose of 
systematizing our real acquisitions and of ascertaining whether some important article, some material link in a chain of social intelligence, may not have been accidentally dropped in the course of our too inconsiderate and unreflecting advancement. We may observe at the outset of our inquiry that in the infancy of human society, as in that of the individual, the organs of sensitive perception, admiration, and reverential awe are probably first developed in mankind by the multitudinous phenomena presented by nature to the contemplative faculties. The secondary causes of these various phenomena being yet necessarily uninvestigated and consequently unknown and unappreciated, the untutored mind in the infancy of knowledge was naturally induced to ascribe them to the direct and continual agency of some immediately impending power whose being and attributes transcended the limits of mortal cognizance. In these early times, therefore, religion and science thus came to be amalgamated, as it were, by a very simple and natural process. The primitive philosophy was essentially theosophistic. The mind of man indeed is constitutionally predisposed to superstition and mysticism, particularly in the early stages of its development and being yet ignorant of the secret influences of nature, it is apt to ascribe their effects, in each individual case, to the direct and immediate agency of supernatural causes. The untutored mind sees God in clouds and hears him in the wind. And in process of time, secondary causes came to be themselves elevated into distinct and essential beings. Thus do religion and philosophy ultimately become amalgamated into one common science, and that science gradually lapses into a system of polytheism. Note, the history of the Jewish nation may seem to contradict this position, but it will be recollected that the Jews themselves were prone to idolatry, and that even in their pure creed, their god was a different being from the gods of other nations, with whom they were at war. The most ancient priests, as we shall presently see, were also the primitive philosophers. There are few subjects, therefore, more interesting to the philosophical inquirer than the history of human superstition, which itself results in a great measure from the ignorance of the existence and operation of proximate causes. This branch of research, indeed, when diligently, accurately, and impartially prosecuted, independently of its value in other respects, cannot fail to disclose to our view some of the most powerful springs of speculation and action in the mind of man. And it must unquestionably tend to make us more intimately acquainted with many of the more important, and apparently, the more mysterious affections and impulses of our common nature. Some not unimportant truths, too, may thus be developed in the course of our inquiries although these last may frequently be distorted or rendered obscure in consequence of their being directly attributed to erroneous, perhaps even to fictitious causes. Before entering into the particular investigation of this interesting subject, however, it may be necessary to impress upon the attention of the reader that superstition, the offspring not of actual depravity, as has been alleged, but of ignorance and credulity, may be manifested either in arbitrary, false, and fantastic notions of things, which have no essential being, or in crude and erroneous ideas respecting the true character and proximate causes of phenomena, which have an actual existence in the nature. 
it becomes the more important to keep this distinction steadily in view, because we shall hereafter be shown many serious and influential errors have arisen in consequence of confounding facts with the false, imperfect, or unsatisfactory explanations which have been vulgarly given of them by ignorant and consequently incompetent interpreters. Facts themselves may be perfectly authentic, while the explanations commonly given of them are false and fantastical. Having their origin in ignorance, misconception, or prejudice, and opinions of this nature are frequently transmitted, unquestioned, from generation to generation, long after these explanations ought to have been rectified and superseded by the general diffusion of a more enlightened and rational science. This circumstance, indeed, as we shall have an opportunity of showing more at large in the sequel, is believed to have been a principal source of the many erroneous and perverted notions, so generally entertained in society, in regard to the interesting conclusions to which we are naturally led by the curious phenomena of animal magnetism, which have been so fully elucidated by the disinterested labors of those learned and ingenious men, who, in defiance of skepticism, obloquy, and ridicule, have endeavored to expissate the facts and explain the mesmeric doctrines. In the infancy of knowledge, we may remark, every particular portion of nature was an object of simple but profound and mysterious admiration, and was placed by the poetic fancy of man under the special government and tutelary guardianship of its own peculiar presiding deity. The earth, the ocean, the stars, the winds, the mountains, the woods, the rivers, etc., were all placed under subjection to a particular supernatural influence. Each had its own special and appropriate God. The diseases which occasionally afflicted humanity, probably less frequent in the earlier than in the more advanced stages of society, were believed to be produced by maleficent genii. Dreams were the gift of beneficent spirits. Nervous crises, originating in an abnormal condition of the organism, were held to be prophetic inspirations. Hence that motley mythology embraced in the devotional conviction of entire nations, and subsequently enlarged, embellished, and perpetuated by the fancy of the poets, which, although long since discredited and exploded by the revelation of a more pure and genuine religion, and the gradual development of a more sound and rational philosophy, may still be recognized in many of the habits and prejudices and ceremonial observances of the people down to a recent period. In process of time, however, a spirit of meditative inquiry was combined with the contemplation of nature. Metaphysical systems were excogitated by men of powerful faculties and cultivated minds. More reasonable, indeed, and better concocted, but still, for the most part, founded upon no substantial basis. And which being addressed only to men of superior understandings, were incomprehensible, and therefore valueless to the generality of mankind. At length, in the fullness of time, Christianity superseded paganism, and although a considerable leaven of ancient heathenism still remained incorporated with the popular acceptation of the new faith, yet the mind of man gradually became emancipated from the thraldom of many erroneous conceptions. A more accurate observation of the phenomena of nature and of their causal connection ultimately led to more rigorous and more just methods of investigation and reasoning. And physical as well as intellectual science at length were announcing the errors and hallucinations of premature speculation, 
ultimately cast off the trammels of superstition and fable. The old fantastic faith had lost its power. The ancient gods were exiled from the earth. It appears to be now universally admitted by the learned that science and civilization had their origin in the eastern regions of the earth, among the ancient Assyrians, Bactrians, Chaldeans, Babylonians, Egyptians, Hindus, Medes, and Persians. Now, it is of some importance to observe that among these primitive nations of the world, the term magic appears to have been employed to designate both natural and supernatural science. Philosophy and religion, including principally theology, astronomy, and medicine, the individuals who addicted themselves to these studies and were presumed to have made the greatest proficiency in their acquirement, were denominated magi, or wise men, philosophers. Students and teachers alike of natural and of moral wisdom, the professors, the priests, and the prophets among the people, and as learning of any kind was a rare acquisition in these early ages, these priest philosophers were universally regarded with veneration and awe by the uninstructed and superstitious vulgar, who conceived that their superior knowledge and endowments could only be obtained by means of an habitual intercourse and intimate converse certain beings of a superhuman order. The study of nature, accordingly, among the early and eastern nations, thus came to be amalgamated with religion, and both were considered as the exclusive province of the Magi, the priesthood, by whom the knowledge thus acquired was combined with their devotional worship and ceremonial observances. The origin of magic, therefore, and its present acceptation, must be traced back to the most ancient traditionary records of the primitive nations of the world. and the earliest dawn of human civilization, Babylon, Chaldea, Syria, Bactria, Persia, Media, Egypt, and India, were probably the cradles of infant science in early times, the chief seats of the ancient magi, and consequently of the primitive philosophy promulgated among mankind. Zoroaster, a personage now difficult to individualize, the Chaldean astronomers and soothsayers, the Egyptian priests and the Indian Brahmins, appear to have been the early depositories and professors of this mysterious knowledge, which was considered too sacred to be communicated to the promiscuous vulgar. And upon these personages also devolved the superintendence over the religious tenets, worship, sacrifices, and ceremonies of the people the cure of the sick, and above all, the due conservation of the sacred science. In all ages, knowledge may be said to be power, or at least to afford the most effectual means of acquiring and retaining dominion over the mass of the people. But this is more especially the case in the infancy of human society, when learning and ignorance are separated by a wider interval, and when all science is generally believed to have a superhuman origin. The Magi, therefore, in these early times were held in the highest estimation by mankind, as the venerated depositories of all science, sacred and profane, consequently as the mediators between earth and heaven, the interpreters of the divine will to the inhabitants of this lower world. Their social rank corresponded with the dignity of their sacred functions. They were either themselves princes of the land or the chief tutors and indispensable counselors of princes as we learn from the Old Testament scriptures and from other ancient records. As their duties, however, were paramount, so were their responsibilities great and stringent, 
The qualifications required of them, in addition to learning and practical wisdom, were a strict devotion to truth and justice, and a pure disinterestedness of moral character. The neglect of their appropriate duties, or the violation of any of these essential virtues, subjected the delinquent to the severest punishment, of which history has preserved some notable examples. From all that has been said, it would appear that the word magus, in its original signification, denoted at once a philosopher and a priest, a lover and cultivator of all natural and moral wisdom. And as, in the primitive notions of mankind, all science was believed to emanate directly from above, from the immediate inspiration of divine power and wisdom, and was carefully preserved from generation to generation as the peculiar inheritance of the priesthood, the Magi, the individuals of that consecrated caste were regarded not only as the special favorites of heaven and the hereditary ministers of the national religion, but as the rulers, the advisors, and the physicians of the people. For even medicine itself was in these times regarded as a mystery and consequently considered as a portion of the sacred science. Note that in early times, medicine formed a portion of magical science, appears from the testimony of various ancient authors, as well as from the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Pliny even derives the latter from the former. Plato also considers magic as that science which is consecrated to the service of religion. And Apuleius, as well as other ancient authors, informs us that the word magus signified a priest. Sacerdos in the Persian language, and that among the vulgar, a magus was, properly speaking, considered as a privileged person who maintained an intercourse with the gods. The most general meaning of the expression magic, however, appears to have comprehended all that knowledge, divine or human, which was deemed mysterious and inaccessible by the vulgar. The magi, in short, were originally the physicians as well as the priests of the people, and this connection was continued in Europe long after the destruction of the ancient institutions of paganism. Until a comparatively recent period, the hospitals in France were placed under the superintendence of ecclesiastics. After the introduction of Christianity, indeed, magic and the magi were subjected to a grievous degradation, as we shall see in the sequel. The pagan priests were said by the new converts to worship the devil, to whom they were alleged to be indebted for all their knowledge and power, and hence magic came to be accounted diabolical. The combination of these various offices, too, in the persons of the members of the priesthood, together with their reputed endowments of superior knowledge and sanctity, and their supposed intercourse with the celestial powers, contributed to clothe them with large authority among the people and caused them to be universally regarded with extreme reverence, while at the same time these circumstances rendered them the almost supreme arbiters in all important matters of public or even of private concern. Chapter 2 In ancient as well as in modern times, magic or that species of learning and science which was thought to be beyond the reach of the vulgar mind, was also believed to comprehend the art of exercising powers which have always been counted supernatural, such as the endowments of divination and prophecy, and the faculty of operating miraculously, as it had been generally held, upon other persons, either present or at a distance. Magic, thus understood, was 
sedulously cultivated by its devotees throughout the whole of the Eastern world. It constituted the essence of the ancient mysteries in Egypt and in Greece, of which we shall have occasion to speak in the sequel. And it was propagated, at a later period, by the Jewish sect of the Essenians, by Pythagoras and his disciples, and subsequently by the school of the Neoplatonists at Alexandria. The suppositious derivation of this science, so generally prevalent at different periods of history, was manifestly founded upon ignorance, and consequent misapprehension of the actual powers and established laws of nature. And the belief itself was fostered by those superstitious feelings which, to a certain extent, predominate over the intellect in all ages, and are peculiarly characteristic of barbarous and uncultivated times. Magic, indeed, when considered as a science transcending the limits of mere human acquirement, was a natural product of the infancy of learning and civilization. The extent of the powers of nature, even in her more ordinary and obvious manifestations, could not yet have been generally ascertained and determined, far less accurately defined and correctly appreciated. And consequently, all those more remarkable occurrences which surpass the most familiar experience of life or of which the rude knowledge of the times was incapable of comprehending the scientific causes, were at once accounted supernatural and ascribed to the immediate interventive agency of the gods, or to that of beneficent spirits or malignant daemons. Miracles, prodigies, and portents are things of frequent occurrence in the earlier ages of the world but they become rarer in proportion as science and civilization advance and dispel the darkness of mental vision. As a learned and eloquent author has observed, the farther men advance into the light, the less apt are they to start. But the exclusive possession of this mystical science by the priesthood, the Magi, in these rude times was natural enough and might in some respects have been beneficial as it unquestionably constituted a powerful spring in the engine of government. The continuation of this association of the sacerdotal with the scientific character, however, in later ages, when knowledge had become more generally diffused through a wider circle, as in the instance of the more modern popedom, was manifestly productive of much serious injury, both to religion and to science which, in process of time, instead of being permitted to exist together in union and harmony, it became customary to represent as incompatible with each other. Hence the many abuses that have arisen and the many enormities which have been perpetrated at various periods by individuals and by governments, and their preposterous and insane attempts to enforce conformity with particular dogmas of faith and to protect and promote the interests of the national religion by arresting the progress of scientific knowledge, as if an ignorant and blind belief were preferable to an enlightened and reasonable conviction. Whenever inordinate power has been conferred upon the priesthood, or gradually usurped by that ambitious, influential, and it may be irresponsible body, especially in the more advanced stages of society, it has been almost invariably abused to the injury and retardation of truth and consequently to the great disadvantage of the general community. The very sanctity of their calling and the prestige of their divine authority in the general estimation of the people appear to absolve the members of that profession from all those responsibilities which operate as a salutary restraint upon the conduct of every other class of the people. 
and which tend to prevent them from abusing the power over the lives and consciences of their fellow men, with which, from accident or policy, they may have been entrusted. Besides, as Lord Bacon and other distinguished philosophers have justly observed, every effort that has been made in any stage of civilization to combine physical science with theology has uniformly terminated in giving us bad philosophy and worse religion. When confined within the appropriate limits of their respective spheres, there is really no necessity for any rude collision between them. The foundations of the one rest upon veneration, faith, and hope, those of the other upon observation, experience, and reasoning. It would be manifestly absurd to attempt to demonstrate a mathematical proposition by moral reasoning, or to prove the rectitude of a religious dogma, or of an ethical principle, by mathematical demonstration by the properties of the circle, the square, the triangle, or the hypotenuse. Illegitimate reasoning is equally injurious to religion and to science. Like almost every other branch of human knowledge, accordingly, to whatever cause the circumstance may be ascribed, the early magic or supernatural science as it was then accounted, along with all the practices resulting from its study and application, degenerated in subsequent times it ceased to be held in general repute among the influential classes. And it is alleged to have been frequently employed in subserviency to the most ignoble, the most dishonest, and the most dangerous purposes. It became incorporated with the most vulgar and perverted religious notions of antiquity, and gradually came to be distinguished into two distinct kinds, the theurgic and the goetic the legitimate and the diabolic magic, the white and the black art. According to the particular sources from which it was supposed to be derived and the different objects to which it was sought to be applied, in process of time, the original signification of the term was almost entirely lost sight of. The science itself became totally perverted from its original purposes, and the reputation of magic in this state of degeneracy consequently fell into general discredit. These facts may be elicited from various narratives in the Old Testament scriptures. The ultimate introduction of the Jewish, or rather of the Chaldean devil, and of his infernal agents and emissaries upon the theater of the supernatural world, soon after the diffusion of Christianity throughout the semi-barbarous nations of Europe, as shall be seen hereafter, occasioned a transference of many natural phenomena to the alleged influence of his satanic majesty. And as will be seen in the sequel of our history, these pernicious notions ultimately engendered a series of the most extraordinary, the most absurd, the most mischievous and brutalizing hallucinations that ever afflicted and degraded humanity. Hallucinations which presented a formidable barrier to the progressive development of science and civilization, and became productive of more barbarous and shocking atrocities than ever signalized and disgraced the darkest superstitions and relative practices of the pagan world. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.